Let's give attention now to the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 23 of Mark chapter 13. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to a passage of your word, which specifically calls upon us to understand, which implies that there may be some difficulty in understanding, we pray for the help of your spirit. Give us clarity, Lord, and we pray that whatever else we may have to leave obscure or unaddressed in this passage, that it would be clear to us that our Lord Jesus Christ has equipped us to encounter the trials that we will face, that in mercy he shortens and abbreviates them for the sake of his elect. And so, Lord, may we leave this passage with greater clarity, but with greater encouragement and with greater reciprocal love to the Christ who has loved us so greatly as this. In his name we pray. Amen. You might remember the context that is happening here. The Lord Jesus had left the temple for the final time after teaching there, after overcoming his adversaries there. And when his attention was drawn to the magnificence of the temple building, he gave the cryptic prediction that not one stone would be left upon another. And then when he got to the other side of the valley, when he was seated on the Mount of Olives, in a way that was reminiscent of when the glory of God left the temple of Jerusalem in a vision that Ezekiel had and paused on the Mount of Olives, his disciples asked him, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And there with the temple in view, the Lord Jesus began to speak to them about when that prediction would be fulfilled. And you may remember that our approach to this has been to say that the destruction of the temple really happened. It happened in its cause when the Lord Jesus was rejected, when the builders rejected the chief cornerstone. At that point, the temple could not continue. And even though the physical structure would endure for another 40 years or so, its doom was sealed because those who were in charge of running the temple had lost sight of the true meaning of the temple. They rejected the one in whom all of that significance was embodied 
and expressed. God came to his temple and they said, no, thank you. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Well, at that point, how could the temple continue? But it's also very clear in this passage that the actual physical destruction of the temple is in view. And so the primary reference is to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. However, that destruction is itself, as it brings to a visible close, as it manifests the end of the old order, which in reality had ended with the death and resurrection of Christ, as it manifests the end of that order, it brings up general principles that will apply until the end of the age, and it also functions as a sort of a type or symbol of the end of the world. And so we have a little bit of a complex approach to all of this. Much of what is said is actually fulfilled in its cause, in its origin, in Christ. That fulfillment is then made visible or manifest in the destruction of the temple, and then that in turn functions as a way to show us what the end of the world will be like. You may also remember that I did point out that some of what Mark says here is said by Matthew in a different context. And so that lets us know that there's still an application because there is still a general principle that continues to inform how we respond to all of this. Now, you may think that that's a little bit too much review, but it's important to have those things clearly in mind as we begin to analyze what is said here. This whole section could be summarized under the title for our sermon, Head for the Hills. There is a time to skedaddle. There is a time to run away and hide. And that's not permanently how we live, but it's very clear. You head for the hills. He says that. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that's a very urgent flight. That is not something that brooks or admits of delay. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down into the house. In other words, you went down the outside stairs and you took off. You did not go into the house to get your identification or the title deed or anything. You took off. Let the one who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But wait, I'm going to the mountains. It's going to be cold. I'm going to need my sleeping bag. Well, there's no time for that. This is a very urgent running away. And that's why there's a woe expressed to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing, how difficult it is to run away and hide in the mountains when you have charge of little children, when at any moment a baby in very vulnerable conditions could appear in the world. In those days, there will be tribulation. Now, under that overarching command, head to the hills, run to the mountains, There are several other commands that the Lord Jesus brings up. And the first command we look at is actually not the words of the Lord Jesus. It's a little parenthesis. It's a little insertion on the part of Mark, where he says in parentheses, let the reader understand. Now, why does he say that? Well, he's alluded to the abomination of desolation that was described by the prophet Daniel. So people can go back to the prophet Daniel and they can look at the abomination that makes desolate and they can see that Daniel predicted a time when God's temple would be invaded, when it would be desecrated and defiled. 
And that did happen, of course, when the zealots seized control of the temple, their behavior was very disgraceful. And then, of course, the temple was invaded, it was ransacked, it was burned. When Luke is giving his version of this, instead of the phrase, the abomination of desolation, he has the armies that surround. He saw the Roman invasion as itself a desolating abomination. But why does Mark put in that little phrase, let the reader understand? Well, I think he puts it in for a couple of reasons. One is to let us know, you are going to have to stop and think about this. It's not going to be automatic. I think in part it's also because you have to notice this in time. Now, was the time to run to the mountains when the temple was on fire? Or was that a little bit too late? So you had to be watching the direction of events and see what was coming. In fact, we're told that many Christians who lived in Jerusalem did, in fact, get away to the city of Pella before Jerusalem was destroyed. They got enough information from this. They recognized, they saw the direction that things were heading, and they got away. They fled to the mountains. What about us? We hear this command, let the reader understand. Well, there's also an application to us. First of all, because Mark puts in that note, we realize we're not looking for a one-to-one fulfillment where once again an idol is erected in the temple or where an altar is used and sacrifices are offered to a God other than the true God within the temple precincts. The correspondence doesn't have to be that exact. Any abomination that makes desolate, anything that defiles the temple will count as fulfillment of this. But there's also a note for us here. As we read, we are supposed to understand. We're supposed to understand so as to be able to apply it to ourselves. We're supposed to understand so as to derive encouragement from this. In other words, we can't say this was all fulfilled in AD 70 and now there's no relevance to us. I think we should understand that it was fulfilled in AD 70, but also that there is a relevance to us. And notice what the next command is, verse 18. Pray that your flight may not be in winter. Now there is definitely something that was not limited to that time. The command to pray, of course, was arising in terms of mitigate how bad this is. Mitigate how much the suffering will be. We know that tribulation is coming. We know that it's an unprecedented and an unrepeated tribulation. By the way, for anybody who wants to postpone all of this to the end of the world, would it make sense to say that there would never be a subsequent tribulation like that if that were the very end? Well, of course there wouldn't be. Everything has come to an end. Time has come to a screeching halt. There's no opportunity for that to be a meaningful remark. But even if we're never going to experience a tribulation quite along these lines, what should our response be to what we've heard that we know is of general validity about rewards and rumors of wars? Well, prayer should be a part of our response. We should understand, and we should put that understanding into practice through prayer. Now, how often is that the application? when we're looking at 
predictions of the future, whether they're fulfilled predictions or whether they're predictions that as yet remain to be fulfilled. But I think this is the first place to go. I think this is where we begin. You hear the Bible talking about what has happened or about what will happen. What do we do with that? Well, the first thing we do is we turn it in to prayer. How can we pray for the church? How can we pray for one another? Well, we can pray that we will persevere. We can pray that God will remember, that God will know our frame, that he will remember that we are dust, that he will mitigate how bad things are in keeping with how much strength he intends to give us. Turn the predictions into prayer. That's a good use to make of them. Don't sit around worrying and stewing. Don't sit around trying to figure out exactly where we are in the timeline. That's a waste of time. That's blowing your energy on something of no profit. Turn it into prayer. Now we're talking. Now we're getting somewhere. And what are we to pray for? Well, we're to pray for things not to be as bad as they could be. You know, it's always helpful to remember that. Of course, when people are suffering, they don't like to be told, oh, this is not that bad. Other people have had it worse. When I went through the same thing, it was a lot worse for me. That's usually not helpful. But it is helpful for us to remind ourselves that there are still many blessings to be counted, that things could be worse. We get stressed, we get anxious, we get run down, and we lose sight of our blessings. That's not ideal. Things could be worse. So we should give thanks for that, and that will help a lot. But we pray, and we pray in what confidence? We pray in confidence of the Lord's mercy. Look what it says. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now that's said with reference to the destruction of the temple. I understand that. But that serves as an illustration of what God continues to do for his chosen ones. What is the reason behind the government of the world? What is the reason behind the way things turn out? God is taking care for his elect. God is considering them. He is not pushing them beyond what they can bear. God is faithful with the temptation he provides a way of escape. That's why we pray about these things, and that's why our prayers make a difference, because the Lord hears his elect. He answers them. He bears long with them. Now, of course, the first generation who read or heard Mark's gospel, many of them, not all of them, but those who lived in Judea would have been able to apply this very directly. The first time you hear Mark's gospel, I bet you start praying, Lord, don't let our flight be in the winter. That would have been a very biblical way to pray. What's the application? How do we generalize that out for ourselves? Well, we pray for mitigating Mercies. Are we necessarily asking that the Romans won't invade Judea during the winter? Well, no, those specifics do not apply any longer. But we can ask for mitigating mercies. If we're going to be sick, we can ask that at least we're able to sleep well. Or if we can't sleep well, we can ask that at least our minds would run on profitable things instead of just spinning and spiraling on useless junk. 
Now, that's just one illustration. You can think of your own mitigating mercies for your own particular circumstances, whether that's individually or whether that's as a church. But you have here authorization. You have divine permission to pray for mitigating mercies for yourself and for others. We can also pray for the church as a whole, especially for those who are persecuted, that the persecution will not rise too high, will not be too intense. The Lord shortened those days for the sake of the elect so that some would be saved. Obviously, all of the elect are saved in the theological sense. Here it's talking about surviving that particular crisis. The Lord shortened those days so that some would come through alive. We can absolutely pray along those lines. So we are supposed to understand. They were supposed to understand. They were supposed to pray, and so are we. They were supposed to take heed, and so are we. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. There will be many false Christs and false prophets. They will do signs and wonders. Now, that also, I think, was carried out at that time, but I don't think it ceased. I think there are still lying signs and wonders that are designed to deceive, that are designed to lure us astray. And you notice the Lord Jesus says it will rise to such a height that it would deceive, if possible, even the elect themselves. Now, on the one hand, there's a challenge there. The Lord Jesus is telling us to take heed because there's a lot of deceit swirling around. We apparently need to be on our guard. You don't get to sit back and say, you know what? I'm elect. Nobody will ever fool me. I won't be deceived. That's not the behavior of somebody who's been chosen. Somebody who's been chosen hears the Lord Jesus say, take heed and says, okay, I better sit up and take notice. The Lord Jesus will keep you from being deceived if you're one of his elect, but he will keep you through means. He will keep you through the means of you paying attention to the warnings. So don't dismiss the warning. We reject every substitute for Christ as we cling to the true Christ. Well, how are you going to distinguish between the real and the counterfeit? You have to be acquainted with the characteristics, with the qualities of the real one. That's how you tell. That's how you can figure it out. That's why in your money, in your bills, they have all these security features built in so that you can distinguish the real one from the counterfeit one. Well, the Lord Jesus has qualities, has characteristics that set him apart. Do not believe. Those who peddle lies in his name. Do not believe those who pretend to replace him or substitute for him. They will try to deceive everyone. And if it weren't for the Lord's preserving, they would deceive us too. But the Lord preserves us through his warning. So we need to take heed. Now, what's being described here? What's being described here is a moment of particular crisis. And the unique features of this crisis are just that. They are unique. We are not to look for a repetition of this to happen in our own place and in our own time. But what application can we draw from it? What lesson can we learn? Well, first of all, there is a general 
lesson that we can draw that there are moments of particular crisis that do call for unusual responses and unusual behavior. You might remember that in Psalm 11, David was encouraged to flee to the mountains and people were saying that to him as bad advice. They were encouraging him to forget that the Lord was in his holy hill. But here, the Lord Jesus is encouraging some people to head for the hills. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you there's a time to stay and fight. There's a time to face things bravely. And there's a time to get out of Dodge. Part of wisdom is knowing how to distinguish and how to determine, how to recognize the signs. It is time to go. There were a lot of people who were very alarmed and who headed for the hills during the Y2K crisis, if you can cast your mind back that far. Most of them didn't need to do that. And it wound up not being a good thing that they did. Running too early is a bad idea. But waiting too late is also a bad idea. You might remember Jeremiah being told not to take a wife, not to have children. You might remember Paul giving counsel for this present distress that it was better not to get married. You might hear the woe pronounced here on those who are pregnant or those who are nursing. It's not that God is against those things, but it's that it is going to create some extra difficulty. We've been in dialogue with some of the Reformed churches in Cuba, some representatives from there. And right now they're in a situation, the churches encourage everybody, if you can get out of Cuba, get out and don't come back. So even the moderator of their synod got out and did not go back. Well, there's a time and a place for that sort of unusual response. If you're in the middle of war, You might not want to get married just then in light of the dangers, in light of the possibilities. I'm not making any specific recommendations here. I don't think the pulpit is necessarily the place to do that. But I just want to put out there the general principle. There is a time to stand and fight. There is a time to head for the hills. We need to distinguish. We need to recognize, is this one of those particular crises where we skedaddle or is this ordinary life in a fallen world, and we tough it out. And the answer won't be the same for everybody. If you were expecting, you might head for the hills a little bit earlier, so you would have time to pack a bag. Not everybody is going to have the same answer to this, but we need to be aware of the range of possibilities. So that's the general application. That's one thing that we can do with this. We can recognize that according to the Bible, there are particular times of crises of crises that call for unusual behavior and response, what we wouldn't ordinarily do. That is a possibility. It's something to keep in mind. It's something to ask the Lord for discernment to know when is the time to head for the hills. However, There's much more in this passage than that, and I certainly do not want to end with that. I want you to notice something about the Lord Jesus, because this is still a revelation of him. The unique particulars, the specific features of that circumstance, they've been fulfilled. They're over with. But the revelation that those gave us of who Christ is continues to remain, continues to apply continues to be something that can encourage our hearts. Notice how he ends this particular paragraph. He says, Take heed 
See, I have told you all things beforehand. The Lord Jesus knew that in 40 years, roughly speaking, his elect ones, his chosen ones, believers in Jerusalem and in Judea would be facing an unprecedented crisis. They would be facing something very unusual. And he prepared them for it. He said, I have told you all things beforehand. I want you to notice what sort of a shepherd, what sort of a leader, what sort of a king the Lord Jesus is. He's a king who cares very deeply for his elect. He cares enough about them to tell them the truth, even when it's hard. He cares enough about them to get them ready. He cares enough about them to let them know that if they waited until it was almost too late, it's time to hustle. You might remember Lot and his daughters leaving Sodom. They didn't have time to pack a bag and take anything with them. They had to go. The Lord Jesus looks after his elect. He looks after us by telling us what to do, by giving us these hints, these principles, by admonishing us to understand. He helps us how to respond in faith by teaching us to pray rather than to panic. And he lets us know that in all of these ups and downs, in whatever is coming, whatever thing will be announced tomorrow or next week or the 1st of December or whenever, he's told us, he's equipped us, and he governs, he rules over all of it for the sake of his elect. Why are those days shortened? Because of the elect. Who cannot be deceived? The elect. Why? Not because of how special they are in themselves, but because he has chosen to set his love upon them. He has committed to them. He will keep them. He will preserve them. He will preserve them in the dangers. He will preserve them in the deceptions. It doesn't matter what is thrown your way. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for he is with you. That's the great comfort. That's the great doctrine of this passage. The great teaching of this passage isn't really this or that has happened or will happen. I mean, that's there. But the big point, the glorious teaching here is that come what may, the Lord Jesus is our faithful shepherd. He rules and governs over all things for the sake of the elect. What determines his decisions? You do. I don't don't mean that he asks you what you think he should do, but your good, your preservation from destruction, from error, your preservation determines what he decides to allow, what he decides to send. On whose behalf does the Lord Jesus reign over all things? Well, you can certainly say that he reigns over all things in the name of his Father. That's true. He reigns over all things for the glory of God. But you could also say he reigns over all things for the good of his church, for your good, for my good. What decisions are made? The decisions that are good for the elect. In that confidence, can you pray about the crises and problems that we can see on the horizon and not panic? 
In that confidence, can you go through them knowing that the Lord is your shepherd? May God grant that it be so. Amen.